When I go into companies, it's hard to convince them that, in fact, there's a lot of exponential change going on. The immediate need is to meet the next quarter or or basically focus on the bottom line, and that makes companies blind to what's ahead. So in this conversation today in the podcast, we're, we're going to be looking ahead at what, what, how, what all these disruptive changes that are going on, all the innovations that are taking place, what does it mean, what, does, what do workplaces look like when all that's done, essentially underneath the moniker of the future of work, but also with the opportunity for you to look more closely at what lies ahead for you and the choices you make. My name is Donna Jones. You've been listening to the Insight to Action podcast. Thank you for joining me. Some time ago, I talked to Rod Collins about the death of command and control. It was on my previous podcast. And we also talk about wiki management, the idea of distributing action across networks. Today, Rod and I are talking about the future. And why is that? Well, <laughs> if, if you're at all attentive to what's going on in the world today, everybody's focus is on the immediate issue, the immediate distraction, the immediate buzz in the media, whatever it happens to be, it means that people have not got a, a view of what's coming down the pipe. What's, what, all, what do all the disruptors that we're dealing with right now, when you put them together, what happens? What happens to workplaces? What happens to work? What happens to you and your choices and, and, and what that means? So Rod First of all, I'm really delighted to have you on my new program, the Insight to Action podcast. I'm looking forward to hearing about what do you see ahead and, and, and just map it out for us, if you would, please. Provide us with that, that scenario that few people have a grip on at this point. Okay. Let's start out by, by thinking big. I believe that we are living in the most significant transformational time in the history of human civilization. And that we are in the midst of doing something that, that has never happened before. And that is we are shifting epochs. All of human civilization has occurred in the context of a single epoch, uh, which I will call the hierarchical epoch. Because social organization through the three different ages of this first epoch, which was hunter-gatherer, agrarian, and, and, and finally the industrial age, all had one common form of social organization, and it was the top-down hierarchy. It morphed, it evolved, it matured over 10,000 years. We've come a long way from tribal chiefs to chief executives. But the fundamental dynamics have remained pretty much constant. What's happening in the second human epoch is we are transitioning into an entirely new form of social organization. And it's the peer-to-peer network. And it will change the fundamental dynamics for how all social institutions work. So let's step back and and look a little bit more closely at this concept of social architecture. A social architecture has to answer two questions. The first is, uh, how does power work? And the second is, how things get done. And this is where we can see that even though we've evolved over the first human epoch and it's 10,000 years, the power has come from being in charge. And now the ways of being in charge have evolved. 10,000 years ago, uh, you know, the way you you showed you were in charge is uh, I'm at the top of the hill and I'll kill off others who get in the way. And there was oftentimes the way the leader was replaced was the leader was killed. And, you know, so, for example, Julius Caesar, even even in the Roman societies where 
which were advanced uh, for their times. Uh, this is how power shifted. But it was all a question of who's in charge. We've evolved through civilization in that we've come up with humane, humane ways to replace people. So we either vote them off the island, we elect them out, we fire them, but you get to keep your life. Okay. Uh, and so civilization has advanced. The second question is how do things get done? And things get done or have gotten done all through the first human epic in the context of control mechanisms. If you go back to early civilizations, human groups were much smaller, so people could exercise psychological or sometimes even physical control over people. But as civilization evolved, we, we evolved very sophisticated control structures, of which management is a key one. Really, the sophistication probably began with the Roman Empire, and they invented the decentralized model and one of the things important to recognize is there's very little difference between centralized and decentralized. The difference is in decentralized, you have, you have regional areas, and then you'll have some uh, command person over a regional area, and then they exercise top-down hierarchical management. The Romans really were very good at developing that. And when management comes along in the late 19th uh, century, they really grabbed uh, a lot of the architecture that the, that the Roman Empire had used to organize large numbers of people, and then, that, and then combine that with the management philosophy of Frederick Taylor. And so this remains, until recently, the fundamental structure for really how we've organized uh, all our, our institutions. And this culminated in a bureaucracy, which is the most sophisticated, innovative form of the top-down hierarchy, and much was written about it by Max Weber, the, uh, uh, the famous sociologist. And bureaucracy has dominated uh, our structures uh, all throughout the industrial age, which is the most advanced part of the first epoch. We're shifting now into an entirely different socioeconomic structure. And it's, it's kind of hard for us to see this because it's a true paradigm shift. But let's go back to those two basic questions. How does power work? Well, power is no longer a function of being in charge. It's now about being connected. The way things get done are not through the application of control mechanisms, but through the application of collective intelligence dynamics. And this is a huge paradigm shift. I, I think traditional leaders are going to have a very difficult time making this transition because this notion that power is about being in charge and that things get done through control mechanisms is really, really baked deeply into our psychological DNA as well as our sociological DNA. And so th this is, you know, this is really going to be a very big shift. Uh, let's give some examples of how this plays out. And, and the one I like to use when I do keynote speaking is one that everybody's familiar with, and it's the Wikipedia story. And it's a simple little allegory, if you will. It's, it's an archetype. But all the dynamics that will describe what is going to happen or what has happened over the past couple of decades and I think which will accelerate over the next few decades. All the dynamics are contained in the Wikipedia story and we can see what the reaction of traditional leaders will be. And so a lot of people don't realize that Wikipedia is actually the second iteration of the online encyclopedia. The first one was Newpedia, but of course none of us have ever heard of Newpedia. Well, Newpedia was begun by Jimmy Wales, and Larry Sanger was his editor in charge, 
and they had this idea of the online encyclopedia. But what they did was they just were going to digitize what we had already done. And so they, Newpedia was set up with the seven-stop hierarchical process that has been used for literally centuries, and it was really the foundation of success for the Encyclopedia Britannica. They also assembled a, a very talented group of academic experts, because that's what you do when you write encyclopedias, to write the articles. But they had a problem. After the first year, they only had 25 articles, and at this glacial pace, it was going to take decades, if not centuries, for them to come up with an online alternative. Uh, it's a chance meeting between Larry Sanger and a good friend of his, where he learns about the wiki. Now, the wiki is this esoteric application invented by uh, a software engineer. These software engineers would co-create pretty generic uh, software modules because a lot of software program, they keep putting in the same things over and over again. So his idea behind this was, well, let's create something that we all can use and we'll pool our collective knowledge. And so all these modules will be the best we can do. And, and so Ben Corbett had pointed out to Larry Sanger, you know, how successful this had been. He said, maybe it's a, a way you can improve your encyclopedia. Well, Larry Sanger went back to Jimmy Wales, told him all about it. They, uh, they decided to add the wiki to the Newpedia, and the academic experts went ballistic. And they're still going ballistic decades later. They said there is no place for the crowd in the creation of so uh, scholarly a pursuit as an encyclopedia. The academic experts were outraged. They were insulted. How dare you insult our intelligence? They are so vehement in their objections that Larry Sanger removes Wikipedia from Wikipedia after only five days. But he still thinks it's a good idea, so he starts a second project, and this is what we know as Wikipedia. And Newpedia lasted maybe another year or two at most. Now, the valuable lesson here is how rapidly Wikipedia became successful. And the first lesson we learn out of this is that once you have a network take hold, it will wipe out any hierarchical competitors very rapidly without intending to do so. Jimmy Wales and Larry Sangner did not sit down and have this strategy that it was their goal to put the Encyclopedia Britannica out of print. None at all. All they wanted to do was create an online alternative. But the network that they produced was so powerful, it had that effect. And that's an important thing for business leaders to take recognize or to recognize going forward. In the past, your competitors had you in their sights. In this new epic, you can be put out of business without anybody having you in their sights at all. Another example of this is Craigslist. Okay, what does Craig Newmark do? He creates this software gathering room because he's moved to a new city and he is a self-described shy nerd. So how do shy nerds in new cities meet other people? Well, he figured he can make online connections and find out where things are happening on Saturday nights. People started joining this thing, and then people started to figure out, well, wait a minute, we can use this for job recruiting. Then somebody else figured, heck, we can use this to buy and exchange goods. And without intending to do so, Craig Newmark puts the newspaper classified revenue stream and makes it obsolete. All Craig Newmark wanted to do was to have a social gathering site. 
So what these two stories begin to tell us, and, and this is very important, is that when a network takes hold, it puts in place a sequence of three evolutionary laws. And these three evolutionary laws are what are going to bring on the second human epoch. And the three evolutionary laws can't operate in a world that is not hyper-connected. They can't operate in hierarchical worlds, which is why we haven't seen them up until now. And the three laws are, first of all, is the law of connections. The simple act of connecting things changes everything. And when enough connections are made, power shifts from the elites to the peers. This is why power is no longer about being in charge, but about being connected. And so if people are having trouble with that and scoffing at that, let me go to a very recent simple example to show how the power of connections trumps the power of being in charge. We all remember the recent incident over the summer of Dr. Dow being physically removed from a United Airlines plane. And within 24 hours of that incident, there is a CEO memo that is broadcast in which the CEO praises his employees for adhering to United's policies. Because as far as they were concerned, the only problem was Dr. Dow insisting on staying in his seat and defying United's corporate policies. Well, within 24 hours of putting out his memo, this CEO is doing major backtracking because it turns out that those who are connected are absolutely outraged at what they feel is an inhuman policy. How can you physically remove a person when you have collected their boarding pass? It just defied all common sense. Well, who prevailed? In the end, did United's policies prevail? Or did those who had the power to be connected prevail? Well, we know all the, the answer to this. Within a matter of, I believe, weeks, maybe if not days, United made 10 policy changes. I mean, their own internal audit report couldn't operate that quickly. This shows that power has shifted. A simple example that we can see that's hidden in plain sight. And what I want people to look at is the dynamics. Now, once you have sufficient connections and this power shift has occurred, and we saw this again in Wikipedia, the second law kicks in, and that's the law of self-organization. And this is very important because network structures are self-organized structures. But you can't self-organize unless you have a significant connection base. And so that got established with Wikipedia. It got established with Craigslist. It's established on Facebook and Twitter, which is the way the, the uh, people who are connected could trump the CEO policies of United Airlines. And once this self-organization happens, well, then the connected people can move in very unexpected and innovative ways. And that's going back to the example of Craigslist. This starts out as something to get people to gather together socially, and eventually, through self-organization, morphs into a replacement, a displacement, rather, for the classified 
uh, aired revenue stream of newspapers and put a lot of them out of business. When people are sufficiently self-organized, then the third and most powerful law kicks in, and that is the law of collective intelligence. And collective intelligence is what happens when enough people get self-organized. Self-organized structures will naturally leverage the collective intelligence, provided that four attributes are in place. And these four attributes were identified by James Sorowicki in what I believe is his timeless book, The Wisdom of Crowds. Although it was published in 2006, it is as fresh today as it was over a decade ago. Because I think James Sorowicki has been able to identify some basic fundamental characteristics of how collective intelligence works. And this is something I think we will get very familiar with because it'll be a big driving force in the second human epoch. The four attributes are you need to have diversity of opinion, you need to have independent thinking, you need to have local knowledge, and you need to have aggregation mechanisms. This is why Wikipedia succeeded. It had all four attributes and has become, in effect, a collective intelligence system. You had diversity of opinion because there are all different types of authors here. You had independent thinking because people are free to express their opinion, but they do have to follow some basic rules. They just can't make things up. Okay, there does have to be uh, they have to they have to refer to established articles and established research. Wikipedia is not a place for theoretical constructs or for first generation research. Journals are still the place for that. And so, you know, Wikipedia has some basic rules that the, you do have a lot of, of local knowledge. People who are close to their topics are writing about these. And the aggregation mechanism is the wiki. And one of the rules of Wikipedia, one of its simple rules is there will be only one article per topic. And so we're not going to have dueling perspectives about a controversial topic. People are forced to work it out in the context of the wiki. And if they get into do loop uh, extreme battles, then this is the one time, this is the exception to the rule where the elite, if you will, among Wikipedia and the elite are not preordained so much as they emerge from the community. And it's not a permanent position. It's one that will shift based upon contribution. Another important characteristic of networks. Networks have hierarchies within them. They're not prescribed and they are continually changing. And leadership continually shifts among people within the network. But within every network, there's a hierarchy. And every hierarchy, there are networks. Uh, it's just that which one is the more dominant structure. And so in Wikipedia, the network is dominant. But you can have hierarchies emerging. They're more natural. They're more organic hierarchies. And so with those four attributes in place, Wikipedia is able to be highly productive because it's leveraging collective intelligence. Google is another example of a network structure. It has all four aspects. We are free to express our opinions in what we want to search. We can search in the web whatever we want to look at. A lot of local knowledge comes into play. And Google's page rank is an aggregation mechanism. And interestingly, Google was the last search engine in, but the only one to use collective intelligence as the basis for its search. Once again, demonstrating 
that networks will overpower hierarchical structures. Because before Google, search was done by editorial experts, by a form of an elite. And so the law of collective intelligence is what makes the shift in how things get done from control mechanisms into what we call collective intelligence dynamics. And so what networks do is, is shift the, the architecture of the structure from leveraging the power of one to leveraging the power of many. And as we move into this second uh, uh, human epic, all of our social institutions are going to evolve into, into network structures. And so just to sum up this long answer to your question, what we are witnessing now is, is I think, been referred to as digital transformation. And I think everybody knows that it's out there, but very few people understand what it's about. And so I'd like to present it in this context. Digital transformation is the fundamental architectural shift in the way that the world works from top-down hierarchies to peer-to-peer networks. And it is... As much as it is a technology revolution, which it is, and in a very big and massive way, it is even more so a sociological revolution, and perhaps the most significant sociological revolution in the 10,000-year history of human civilization. Very thorough response to my question, Rod. And if and if people don't understand the arc that we're on uh, after that, I'm not sure what what would illuminate the uh, picture because that's it's extremely thorough. And I think one of the things that I, I found interesting. I remember you referred me to a book called The Seventh Sense. Right. And when I read it, I thought, whoa, you know, the, the, because I've, you know, networks have been on my radar screen since I was working with the Knowledge and Innovation Network, part of the Society for Organizational Learning, when Nick Zanuck was there. And, and you and I both met through that actually down in Tucson. Oddly enough, I just found the notes for that the other day, which was kind of, kind of fun. That in that book, the, just the quiet nature of networks. In other words, you have to be really self-aware. You have to be really observant of deep dynamics. If you, it, for it to even witness these networks at play, it's not, you know, and of course, you know, and as Nick would say, you know, the last thing you want to do is walk in and start controlling them because it, it, you just blow them up. It, that does not work. So that it takes us to this deep set of skills that in, in each leader that help you know what, when to do something and when not to do something and let it go because this, this is, this is power in action and it's not, subject to force. That whole David Hawkins conversation of power versus force gets played out in networks every day. Let's go to the next level of the conversation and and say, all right, we've got artificial intelligence, we've got robotics, we've got climate change, we've got energy shifts, we've got sensors, and we've nanotech, we have all these different different advances that are putting pressure on people emotionally, socially, and I'm going to say spiritually, spiritually meaning the sense of who am I and why am I here? Not, not in a religious sense, but strictly in terms of what's my place in the world and how do I contribute to these changes? What's the scenario that, or a scenario or a way of seeing what's coming out of all of this that provides the imperative for inner evolution, if you will? So let's, let's create another Another framework container, if you will. We've talked about the shift from the first epic to the second human epic. And every one of us will acknowledge the digital revolution has happened. It's here. It's transformative. 
in ways uh, far larger than any of us have ever seen before. Now, at this point in time, we are also going through another shift as this second human epoch is coming up. And we are moving from the first wave into the second wave of the digital revolution. And so the things you talked about and referenced, artificial intelligence, robotics, nanotechnology, okay, these are going to be the tools, the dimensions that will drive the second wave. The first wave was driven by the internet. It was a single engine, and look how much havoc it has wreaked. The second wave is going to have multiple tools. We're already talking about artificial intelligence. We're already picturing how robotics may end jobs. It's creating a lot of fear. So let's backtrack a little bit. The second wave, as we mentioned, will be more transformative than the first because it's going to accelerate this network effect. The Internet of Things will, will be the locus in which this happens. And the Internet of Things will be substantially different from the first-generation Internet. First-generation Internet required a lot of proactive human input. We needed to sit down at computers. We needed to enter data into our iPhones. We've got Facebook out there. And so we could choose when we're participating and, and we're reliant upon basic proactive human input. The Internet of Things is going to be substantially different because it's going, to, it's going to consolidate every human being and everything into a single global network that will be gathering information automatically, passively, 24-7, 365. The data collection that is going to happen in this second wave will be multiple, millions of multiple times, what we've seen in the first wave. And it, it'll, it'll really accelerate the evolution of these three laws. So as every human and everything gets connected, okay, the law of connections is going to be on steroids. The law of self-organization will extend from people to data. Data is going to be self-organizing itself. We're already seeing that data is taking on dimensions of intelligence that we did not think was possible. I mean, if you look at the, at the last 50 years of IT, take it from the mid 20th century to the turn of the century, and if you saw the movie The Computers, you got a sense of that. And we learned that computers originally were people, not machines, which was very fascinating, okay? But what computers could do was simple, basic algorithms, okay? We didn't think that they were capable of pattern recognition or sense-making. Until the second wave came along, we thought that was the purview of humans. Well, we now have computer IT systems that are capable of pattern recognition and sense-making. And so this is what's going to allow these systems to be intelligent. And, uh, and artificial intelligence systems will be network-based systems, and I think for the most part will be collective intelligence systems. So this fear, okay, that the Terminator or some single robotic machine is going to take over the world is merely a projection of the way the world worked in the first human epoch onto the second human epoch. 
But remember, being in charge is not what power is about, whether it's a robot or a human, okay? And control mechanisms and taking control is not how the world will work best in the second human epoch. Now, this brings up a very important challenge, okay? Because as we move into this second wave, as the Internet of Things comes into place, it's going to create two massive jobs that society has to be done. And they are the most important jobs of all, bigger than anything on our current agenda. And we're not even aware of either one of them. The first is we have to replace all our IT systems. Every IT system today is obsolete and is quite frankly dangerous. And the second job to be done is we have to create a new economy because our fears are probably correct that most of the jobs that we know today are probably going to become obsolete. And we need a new economy because we need different ways of measuring value, new value that's being created in a brand and that the second wave will drive. And we have to have better ways for distributing that. And we have to have new ways for wealth creation. These are the two biggest jobs on the planet. If we don't solve these, we could, there could be dire consequences. Because you see, you can't have people who can get into the hyper-connected world and exercise singular control. We have to eliminate that, which is going to be very hard for people to grasp because it's just baked into our DNA that you have to have control to get things done. So let's give a little bit more clarity to what we're talking about. It is possible to envision a world where there will be enough sensors in the healthcare field that we will have every device and every human connected. And so we're going to have devices and sensors in our bodies. And we are going to welcome these in, in our bodies. And here's why. You would like to have a sensor that could pick up the moment a cellular anomaly begins that is the start cancer. And you would like the Internet of Things to be looking at all of these cells everywhere and intelligently understanding the dynamics of how cancer works and notifying you and your physician, not when symptoms are presented, but when the cellular anomalies occur. And when they do, you and your doctor can get to work to make sure the cancer doesn't develop. And as the Internet of Things matures, it will get to the point where we're not even going to have to have a meeting between you and the doctor. Because you see, the artificial intelligence system will be so intelligent that when it sees the anomaly, it fixes it. It makes a, a cellular adjustment in your body. And this is how we're likely to eradicate cancer. This is not beyond the realm of possibility and is definitely in the realm of probability. Now, you mentioned spiritual before. When this occurs, think about it. We will experience for the first time a system that is divine-like. Because what happens to people when they get cancer? Religious people pray. They pray that, that, that a divine source will intervene and will adjust the cellular makeup of their body so the cancer is away. Well, 
that's, that capability is going to exist on a reliable basis. And we're not going to need prayer to tap into it. And I think our sense of spirituality will evolve, regardless of how one feels about whether there's a God or not. I, I, I think people on all sides of, of that spectrum, be they, be they believers or be they non-believers, this will be an evolution of spirituality that we've never seen before, another innovative phenomenon of the second human epoch. But we will experience a divine-like system. And think about this as well. If we have the capability to go in and make cellular adjustments through a global information system, as long as people can exercise individual control, we also create the capability for bad agents to kill anybody that they want to, if they can hack your human body. We cannot allow that capability to exist. This is why the whole concept of control mechanisms need to become obsolete. We need the way things get collective intelligence dynamics will require the power of many rather than the power of one to get things done. And so blockchain technology is probably gives us a sense of it being maybe the pathway or the predecessor to the pathway of the type of IT systems that we have to develop, whereby the collective intelligence of a diverse group of people using independent thinking with a lot of local knowledge, with clearly defined aggregation mechanisms, have to bless every single transaction that happens in the network. And it's not out of the realm of possible thinking because Google examines every single piece of information in the world when you do a search in a nanosecond. And so if we can do it with search, we can evolve these so that within a nanosecond, we can use collective intelligence to bless every single transaction that happens in the context of the singular global network. Without it, we will create the seeds of destruction. With it, we create a divine-like system that will be inherently benevolent. And so that is going to transform the experience of humanity. If humanity exists within the context of a single benevolent system that is inherently biased to do good, which collective intelligence is designed to do, we eliminate the capacity for single bad agents to wreak havoc in the world. The second task is we've got to create a new economy. And blockchain, I think, helps present promise here. Right now, the first wave of the digital revolution has produced, in essence, a feudal society, where a small number of people are, are, are profiting, benefiting from all of the value. And that is, that is just flat out wrong. Now, it's not that people are doing wrong. It's we don't have the systems to do right. Take, for example, Google. Every one of us is contributing value every time we do a search. We're prosumers. We are both consuming as well as producing. However, none of us, or very few of us rather, are being paid for what we produce. So part of the collective intelligence system that we need to build is one that has the wherewithal through sophisticated algorithms, to calculate the contribution that every participant in the network is making 
and to distribute the wealth accordingly. So a little less is going to go to Larry Page and Sergey Brin. But I have a feeling that they wouldn't object. They're set for life, all right? And I think that, you know, knowing their fundamental ethos, that they would agree with a better distribution within the network if we have the, if we built the proper mechanisms or dynamics to do so. And thus, any time that we're producing, you know, if you're producing information, if you're writing a blog that lots of people are looking at, okay, you should be paid for that. I, I think the new economy will also have new currencies. We can see this again through blockchain. I think in the second human epoch, governments will not be the foundation for currency. The network itself will be the foundation. And so this whole new economy has to be created. Because labor as a pathway to health is really an industrial age concept that makes sense only in industrial age. As labor becomes mechanized, as becomes automated, then the whole context of human value is going to shift from labor to contribution. And the new economy has got to be able to calculate and distribute uh, that value uh, according to people's contribution. One last thing, thought on this, we see this need coming because a couple of the, uh, I'll, I'll say this in a cajoling way, a couple of the feudal lords are promoting this notion of universal basic income. Universal basic income is a bankrupt concept because what we are doing is we're, re we're going back to old mechanisms in the first human epoch to try and solve new problems. All universal basic income will be is a massive redistribution system where the vast majority of people will get their wealth through a redistribution scheme. No, if the vast majority are getting it through redistribution, we have a distribution problem. And what we need to do is come up with more creative and more innovative ways to distribute wealth at the beginning. The vast majority of us are not interested in having things redistributed to us. The vast majority of us are interested in, in receiving value for our direct contributions. And we need to create that type of a system. Totally agree. And you're working on a new book, I believe? Yeah, I'm beginning it now. It's probably going to be a, a multi-year project. The research for it is intense. And there is a lot of, shall we say, different thinking in here. But the working title for it is The Second Human Act. Great. Excellent. And where would people go to find out more information about what you're up to now? I'm doing, currently doing a, uh, a monthly blog series on the Great Work Cultures blog in the Huffington Post. And I publish the first Thursday of every month. And I'm in the midst now of a multi-part uh, blog series that's developing this thought we've just talked about. I've just done the first two in the series, which focused on it's all about networks and how collective intelligence is the game changer. And uh, the third part of the series, which will be published on uh, the first Thursday in September, is going to focus on how the Internet of Things will change everything. And then we'll develop these other concepts. We'll talk about the, the two big jobs that need to be done, the biggest jobs we have as a society, and other aspects as we go through the series. Right, right, right. The series is probably going to be the basic outline of the chapters. Uh, each blog will probably uh, evolve into a, in a, into a full chapter. And, and the series is helping me to, to kind of crystallize uh, this thinking. 
nothing like having to get your ideas on paper to pull it together into a more coherent framework for sure. Yeah, the impact for organizations will be tremendous. Organizations as we know them will cease to exist. There will be networks. I think most people will be independent agents operating in several networks. And when it's about contribution rather than labor, there'll still be need for organizational leaders, but these leaders have got to be skilled at leading networks, peer-to-peer networks, not top-down hierarchies. They're going to be more like Jimmy Wales and Larry Page than they will be like Lee Iacopas or, or other, you know, or a, uh, you know, other well-known local people. Rod, thanks very much for being on the program. Great to have you here again. And, and also just to start looking ahead and seeing what's coming so that people can prepare themselves and, and, and really look into what, what do I want, who do I want to be and, and, and what can I, more can I do with who I am in this world. So thank you. Thank you. And I'm very optimistic. I think we will solve the two problems. I think we will too. The tricky bit about these times is that people get afraid. And so when you're making decisions, if you can bring yourself back to a place of trust, back to a place where you feel confident in your ability to adapt and to be agile with what's going on, then you'll be able to navigate whatever things get thrown in your way. My name is Donna Jones. My work is involves decision-making and complexity and uncertainty as well as leading and transcending uh, completely chaotic conditions to achieve a, a level of creative innovation. You'll find my book, Decision Making for Dummies, on, on Amazon and all the usual places. You'll also find a chapter on the new purpose of business in the Intelligence of the Cosmos by Irvin Laszlo. And the website, of course, is from insighttoaction.com. Join me on Twitter, E-P-D-A-W-N-A underscore Jones, or on LinkedIn.